procedure, um, but they were well fasted with no um, comorbidities that would suggest they would have any reason to not have um, normal gastric emptying. And uh, they scanned them and they found that there was solid material in the stomach and so they changed their airway right. technique to a rapid sequence induction. So that's an example of using, I guess, a more conservative approach. Welcome to episode 34 of the Obzangani Crick Care Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this week I have a, a new guest, um, one of the star registrars working with me uh, uh, at the moment, uh, Dr. Mark Sharples. Um, he's give, he gave a great talk uh, at the hospital here on um, the use of gastric ultrasound and anesthesia. So I'm going to uh, get him to go through this uh, really interesting topic. Um, but before we get into that, Mark, um, commiserations about the World Cup. England, how'd they go? Uh, disappointing it's unfortunately not coming home um but it's gone to france instead so we'll have to sort of hang our heads in shame for the next four years <clears throat> although um i'm pretty sure that um getting I mean, most countries would be pretty pleased to get to the semi-final so. yeah it's much better than the disappointments of i think you know previous years so we'll see yeah okay so um mark um tell me so ultrasounding someone's stomach why would an why would um anesthetist or anesthesiologist if you're american why, why would we want to do that do you want to give us a bit of background and explain the um, um this uh, concept sure yeah so um i mean essentially if you look at um you know the nat4 which is a major audit in the uk a few years ago looking at um airway complications and anesthesia um so pulmonary aspiration remains sort of a, a significant cause of uh, morbidity and mortality in anesthesia so, and um, gastric ultrasound is being proposed as a, I guess, a technique to help aid um, our assessment of aspiration risk. Yep. Um, that's good. And so what, what's the history behind it in recent times? Because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty new thing. So who, who's been looking into it and uh, uh, what's the story behind that? Um, so there's quite a few enthusiasts around and, and certainly in this department here, I'm Dr. Matt Rockledge, who um, introduced me to the concept. Um, but broadly speaking, globally, there's two groups. So there's a Canadian group who've done quite a bit of research into the area. And then there's a French group as well um, who've uh, published a lot of literature on the matter. Um, and then various other centres are starting to take an interest as well. Okay. And I guess maybe it's just uh, part, of, part of this whole sort of um, enthusiasm for ultrasound in general now that the technology has made these things... Uh, these devices, uh, point of care devices, are a lot cheaper. Um, so, how, how, do you want to just in brief terms? Uh, we'll, we'll probably put a few links uh, on the website. There's some some more comprehensive sort of learning uh, resources. But just in brief terms, uh, could you describe to myself and the listeners how how would we do it and what are what are the sort of things that we'll be looking at and measuring? Sure. So, um, I mean, from a purely sort of practical point of view, so it's done using the curvilinear probe. Um, literally describes a, a number of positions, but probably the most reliable and commonly described way of doing it is to scan um, in the sagittal and parasagittal plane uh, in both the supine and right lateral decubitus positions. Yep. Um, and then there's a number of things that you can assess. So the first thing to do is to do what's called a qualitative assessment. Um, and part of that is to, uh, so you scan in those positions and you're essentially looking at, you can look at the appearance so yep. essentially you want to define is it empty or full um, and you can look at whether there's clear fluid or solid contents in there. Yep. So clear fluid is described in the literature as sort of being hypoechoic um, whereas solid food tends to be hypoechoic, heterogeneous, 
they described as frosty glass appearance. Yep. Um, and then another way of subcategorizing it is to grade the stomach based on where the clear fluid is. So a grade zero stomach would be no fluid um, visible in the gastric antrum. Um, grade one only in the right lateral decubitus position and grade two in both positions. So okay. that suggests yep. a slightly more full stomach. Um, and then the second approach is to do a quantitative approach, which is based on assessing the relationship between gastric antral uh, cross-sectional area and volume. Um, and they've shown in, in studies that there's a, there's a reasonably good correlation between um, cross-sectional area of the gastric antrum and volume um, in certain populations. Okay. And so for, for, for complete amateurs like myself who have never even um, tried to image the stomach, is it um, a pretty easy thing to pick up? I mean, I'm used to ultrasounding um, some other parts of the body, but not never try the stomach. So I think it's it's like all ultrasound applications in that it's very operator dependent. Um, it's yet to be established as to what level of training is sufficient um, to become competent at it. As some authors have suggested that maybe you need to do 33 supervised scans with feedback from someone who's considered uh, an expert or proficient in the field. Um, yep. So I wouldn't say that it's it's necessarily easy, but if you chat to some people, they, they think that probably from a, a, quantita a quantitative assessment or qualitative point of view, sorry, um, that that's probably easier than the actual yep. measurement of the area <coughs> as such. Okay, and it's a similar to echo, I think, which is, you know, you can often sort of make a sort of descriptive uh, impression of how well the various parts of the heart are working, but doing the measurements is a bit trickier. Um, and uh, so, so one important thing, I guess, is a lot of, uh, you know, because uh, the listeners on this podcast are... Um, heavily interested in obstetrics. So my understanding is that uh, with the sort of gravid uterus in the second and third trimester, is it's a bit harder to see the stomach, is that true? Yeah, so it seems to be, from what I've read, that it's, it's technically more difficult to visualize the stomach or the, the gastric antrum specifically. So I should say that when they've looked at different areas of the stomach, the gastric antrum is the one that's most reliably visualized. And so that's yep. the one all the studies are based on. Um, and obstetrics, firstly, there's the issues with um, displacement of the stomach because of the gravid uterus. And then the models in terms of assessing that relationship between antral cross-sectional area and volume are, are yet to be probably properly validated. So Okay. <clears throat> so it's probably at this stage anyway more useful, uh, well, easier to get images and probably more useful to to us in um, in the gynecological patients or, or women in the first trimester where there isn't much, a lot of um, anatomical displacement occurring. Yeah, I yep. think so. So I think it's also important to acknowledge, as, as um, most literature does, that Gastric volume is only one element of aspiration risk, yep. and so you've got to consider things like um, esophageal barrier pressure and things like that. And um, the other thing to note is that people that you might want to do it in, so those that might have impaired gastric emptying, the models have not been validated in those populations. It's been in healthy people. They've specifically excluded people who might have gastric paresis, for instance. Yep. Okay. So it's really just we're still going to use all the other um, uh, information about the risk of aspiration. And this is, is just another uh, way of adding to that. Yeah. Uh, but we yeah. need to sort of incorporate, we can use it, incorporate it into, into uh, the information we have available. So uh, we thought we would go through a couple of sort of case examples, um, you know, uh, to try and describe how, we, how it might be a useful thing to do. I can remember a few years ago, um, if you uh, indulge me for a second, Mark, I like, now that I'm becoming an old man, I like um, relying on anecdote-based medicine and pulling out all these me memory uh, cases from my um, from my ancient past. Um, we had a woman, uh, I think she had a gynaeo-oncology laparotomy, and uh, she had some sort of problems with her uh, with a bowel injury, and um, 
she uh, so she had to come back for a repeat laparotomy and uh, I remember her coming down and thinking and she was fasted but I remember thinking I was really worried about um about aspiration and I insisted um well I said I talked to her about putting a nasogastric tube in and she was quite reluctant she said it was she'd had one um, earlier in the week and it was really unpleasant and she basically was sort of point blank refusing and it was um, quite, I was quite close to sort of giving into that, but then I sort of became uh, decided I, I would just stick to my guns, and we did put one down, and, and I actually drained two liters of brown sort of mm. feculent stained fluid out of her stomach before we um, popped her off to sleep, and uh, it gave me a real fright because I thought if if I'd tried to induce her and um, intubate her, you know, all that sort of um, particulate filled fluid coming up and going down into her lungs as she went to sleep could have been the end of her really. Um, so. Back then we didn't have ultrasound, so I'm, I'm glad I stuck to my guns. But you know, um, you know, that even, uh, just thinking about it, I think that you know, if I'd known about how to do gastric ultrasound, I probably would have used it in that situation. Um, you were going to tell us about a couple of real case reports that um, sort of illustrated how it's being used in some places. Is that? Yeah, yeah. So there's a couple of, of case reports um, in, in the literature. So I think that example that Roger just gave is a good example of where. Um, gastric ultrasound could have potentially been used to confirm a, a more conservative strategy, which is what was gone with in, the, in, the, yep. in that instance. Um, so the other case reports that I've come across are essentially um, one where they used a more liberal strategy, so they changed their airway technique um, for something that would be considered more liberal, and another one where they used a more conservative strategy where they were originally going to use a, a liberal strategy, um, so to speak. So the first one was an a elderly lady, I think, um, from... A nursing home who uh, came in with a expanding half a calf hematoma that they wanted to yep. um, to drain. Um, the patient was anticoagulated, so a regional technique was contraindicated on the basis of that. Um, and there was this uncertain fasting history where possibly they'd had some mashed potato or some food about four and a half or five hours before. Um, there were a few comorbidities where they were concerned about the hemodynamic instability that might be caused by doing a rapid sequence induction. So they used gastric ultrasound and they were able to confirm that the stomach was empty um, on appearance and they then used a more con uh, liberal approach um, by using an LMA rather than a rapid sequence induction and the patient did well. Um, yeah, okay. And um, another um, case study was a young person turning up for, I think it was a... Um, uh, inguinal hernia repair or something. It wasn't a major procedure, um, but they were well fasted with no um, comorbidities that would suggest they would have any reason to not have um, normal gastric emptying. And uh, they scanned them and they found that there was solid material in the stomach and so they changed their right. technique to a rapid sequence induction. So that's an example of using, I guess, a more conservative approach. Um, yeah, so either the patient hasn't given you a, a, a truthful history and they have been eating or yeah. um, they have some sort of gastroparesis or some, some reason why they're the, the um, food is still in there after, even after a prolonged period of time. Exactly. And that can happen with opioids and things like that, can't it? Yeah, so. or in trauma. Um, yeah. Emergency cases are another example. So there's one study where they looked, and, uh, and as we would expect, they found that it was more common to have a full stomach in an emergency case than in an elective, well-fasted case, regardless of fasting status. Um, so just a quick comment about the first one. You talked about the calf, uh, calf hematoma, where they, where they used the gastric oxygen to be a bit more um, brave and not... not um, put a cuffed tube down and just use a supraglottic airway. What were your feelings on that? I think most people are sort of still still um, reluctant to, to because uh, it's early days, to, to, to put too much weight on. Because, um, I mean, I guess, especially if you're not very um, experienced at gastric oxygen, you might not be viewing the, the, the stomach as 
correctly and, and you could get a false falsely reassuring image and then think it's empty and it's not yeah exactly that's no. why that's my concern anyway yeah and i think that's a danger i mean this was from uh i think a center where they do them regularly so they're right. obviously quite confident in their assessment but i think it's much easier to justify using a more conservative approach yeah um given the state of evidence at the moment um and using a more liberal approach the the i guess the danger is being able to justify yourself in the case of, a, of aspiration. Yeah. Um, and it's important to note that there's no evidence at the moment to suggest that gastric ultrasound reduces aspiration risk, and that's just really by virtue of the size of the trial that you would need to do to, to demonstrate yeah. that you need huge well, numbers. We're already so conservative when it comes to, towards aspiration that it, although um, it still happens, it's such a rare event, it's, very, it's going to be really hard to do any sort of trials. Yeah. So it's just going to have to come from observational data, I think, isn't it? Just out of curiosity, off the top of your head, you may or may not remember, but how many people died from aspiration in that four, or how many? Can you remember? We'll have to go back and look. I'd have to have a look. I thought the incidence rate was was it one in four thousand or something, but I might be way off. I can't remember. Yeah, Yeah. but it was. And obviously, it's it's much higher in emergency surgery than in selective. But um, so I I think that aspiration was responsible for I think fifty percent of mortality cases in in um, four. Have you ever had any cases of asp- or witnessed any cases of pulmonary aspiration in your career so far? I'm trying to think. Uh, I've witnessed one, and that was a, a few years ago. Um, it was on a Sunday where there was a patient, uh, I think, having a lower limb orthopedic procedure done on a second generation LMA. And yeah. at the end of the case, they coughed, and then there was um, you could see gastric fluid coming up the, the port, um, and then they aspirated and desaturated and T wave inversion and. Um, Did they get a chemical then. pneumonitis or? or uh, I didn't follow them up actually, but um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I've certainly come. Uh, remember when I in my ICU days, we had a few patients who there was query aspiration, uh, and, and they were on the ventilator for a while, and that sort of thing. So we've got to remember that um, you know this is part of anaesthesia, it's like um, Mendelssohn described, which is I think correct if I'm wrong. That was when people were giving um, volatiles. In labour, wasn't it? Mendelssohn, is that right? I'm not sure, actually. I think yeah. all the people who are listening to this podcast are cringing at the lack of our knowledge yeah. <laughs> of our specialty. Yeah. <laughs> so we might have to edit that out, or we might leave it in uh, because we're honest. Um, anyway, um, thanks for uh, coming along, Mark. It's really, really useful. And um, uh, I think we mentioned uh, close to the start, so there are some really good... Um, links to um, i think there's a website was it gastricultrasound.org gastricultrasound.org yeah um, um, which is one of the groups i think it's the canadian group isn't it who um who have done mo- a lot of the um publications and research in this area and uh and if there's anything else um any other good resources we'll um, try and put a link to those as well so if you're listening to this podcast on the apple podcast um uh, on your phone or something like that. If you click, if if you have a look at it, it says episode web page. If you if you click on that, that goes, it'll go to the blog post, and we'll have all the links on there. Any final comments, Mark? Um, no, that's it really. I, mean, I think one of the the links we'll put up is a recent narrative review, um, which is quite good for getting a, a good overview of um, gastric ultrasound and where the evidence is at the moment. Um, and it's a fifteen minute read. It's well worth reading if you want to learn a bit more. Yep. Yeah, it's got some good pictures in there that describes the technique well. Yep, I'm definitely going to try and have, uh, have a go at it. Okay, thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by our listeners on the iTunes menu. 
If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandguidecritcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.